Hey, what's good, 9 o'clock? How are we doing this morning? Hey, it is always good to be with you, whether you're here live in the worship center, whether you're over there live in the ridge. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. We're glad to have you, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Special welcome to you. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've already been having an incredible morning, haven't we? That was just an awesome time of worship, and I got to tell you, I am really, really excited for our passage during our time of teaching. As I've been immersed in this passage over the last several weeks, the Lord has been using this to not only speak to me, but to transform me in a key area of my weakness. So I'm excited to be able to share what I've been learning and to be able to continue to learn alongside you this morning. So with that, if you open up your programs, inside you've got a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. Also a great tool to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump right in. Jesus, you have come into each and every one of our lives to completely transform us. Something I've said many times before because I wanna keep this at the forefront of my mind is that your transformation is not to simply make us slightly better people. But Father, you have come to radically transform us at the core of our being. You have come to change the way we think, to change the way we live, to change how we prioritize our life, to change the foundation on which we stand. Jesus, you have come to bring us into your kingdom. And as we're going to talk today, to be a part of the kingdom of God requires a radically new person. And that's the result of coming into your presence, that you transform us into this radically new inhabitant, into this beautiful kingdom. And so today, Jesus, as we open up your word, as we see a strong yet beautiful command from you, let us not approach it with fear and trepidation, but let us approach it with the courage given through the Holy Spirit. Let us approach it with the joy that this is who we get to be because of the transformation of Jesus in our lives. Father, as the communicator this morning, as I often pray, I pray that I become less. Let me fall to the wayside. And I pray that you, our Jesus, our Christ, our Lord, become much, much more. In your son's name, we all say, (laughs) amen. And so if you're joining us for the first time, not only want to welcome you again, but want to take a few moments to bring you up to speed. This morning, we're going to continue the series we've been in for the last several weeks called Unfiltered, The Audience of One. And this is the heart behind this series, that when it comes to Jesus, many, if not all of us, often approach how we view Jesus through a series of filters. And what these filters do is they distort, they, dis- they manipulate, they change the image of Jesus. Therefore, we're not getting an accurate view of who he is, of what he said, and therefore, we don't have an accurate view of what it means to truly follow after him. And so what we want to do is we want to go back to one of the earliest accounts, go back to the first century, looking at the gospel according to Matthew. And by looking at one of the earliest accounts of Jesus, we want to be able to capture some new images images by removing these filters. So again, we not only see who the true Jesus is, but we have a good understanding of what it means to follow him. And so in this series in particular, we've been in a series, we've been in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave, and it's arguably the most famous teaching in the history of our world. And what Jesus is doing through the Sermon on the Mount is he is declaring that the kingdom of God is now here, that the kingdom of 
God has come in the person of Jesus, and the kingdom of God is here to transform everything. At Rocky Peak, we often say that Jesus has an epic vision for each and every one of your lives, and that's what it means to, de- to declare that the kingdom is here, that this new vision is that we would be transformed to be inhabitants of this kingdom, and the kingdom would now be our new daily reality as well as our new eternal reality. And so last week, Michael started a new section in this in which he talked, in which Jesus was teaching about our view on money and possessions. But that also led to a bigger picture, a bigger heart question as to who is your master? Often something like money and possessions can become a God, a false God in our lives. And there in the front of your note sheet, I put a quote from Michael last week that really summed up last last week, and it's this, there is only room for one God in your life. It can't be God and. Do you remember that? And that is a very important question for us as we continue to grow in the kingdom, that there is only room for one God, and we need to examine, are there other things, are there other emotions, are there other people, are there other aspects of our lives that we've elevated to Godhood alongside Jesus? And so today in our passage, what Jesus is going to do by using that question as our foundation is he's going to to speak into another false God that many of us have, and that is the false God of worry. That is the false God of fear. That is the false God of anxiety. And so what Jesus is going to do through a powerful statement is that he is going to invite us as his children to live in a new reality, one that is no longer in bondage because of worry, but one that is truly experiencing freedom from worry because of who God is. And so with that, in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Jesus' Command. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. Got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Now, for those of you that are new to your Bible, Matthew is the first book of the second half of our Bible, what we call the New Testament. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. And as you're turning there, if you've got a physical Bible, have a pen ready. If you've got your apps, have the highlight function ready. We are going to mark this up. So Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Now, normally I would read the complete sentence, but we need to stop right there because this is preaching to us already. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Would you underline that? Would you highlight that? Put a box around it, flames, happy face, whatever you need to draw your eye to it because we need to understand this is a very strong statement. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. And so when he starts that way, therefore I tell you, this is a statement that Jesus makes in other places throughout his gospels. It is a statement of authority. Jesus is invoking who he is. In essence, he is issuing a command as the Messiah, as the creator, I tell you, do not worry. And so the Greek word for worry is a word called mari now. And it often has two different connotations. The first is an appropriate 
appropriate concern, is an appropriate view, an appropriate acknowledgement for some of the issues in our lives. But the second usage is the one this passage is using that's talking about in intensity, in intense emotion, in intense concentration that dominates our focus. So understand the meaning of the word that Jesus is using. Jesus is not prohibiting having concerns about something. Jesus is not prohibiting planning for the future, thinking about tomorrow. Jesus is not prohibiting working hard so we can provide for ourselves and our families. But what Jesus is speaking against is that worry that dominates our lives, is the worry that comes in and takes control, and we can't see anything else past that worry. And so again, we need to think about the strong language Jesus is using. So let me paraphrase it. Jesus, the Messiah, is saying, I command you, do not worry. Drop the mic. Now, I don't know about you, but that hits me very, very hard. I would say that when I reflect on my own life, there aren't many things I am great at. But one of the things I'm exceptional at is worrying. One of the things I'm exceptional at is being filled with anxiety, is thinking about my problems, is worrying about my problems, worrying about tomorrow, worrying about provision. And so for many of us that we share that trait, hearing this command is completely radical, isn't it? Because if we're honest with ourselves, if you're like me, worry is such an integral part of our lives. We almost don't know how to live without it. In fact, I would say like many of us would, I want to be free from worry. I don't want this to be a focus in my life, but I have no idea how to do it. In fact, I titled the message Freedom from Worry. And for many of us, that sounds like an impossibility. And so as we think about it, worry isn't just a Jesus and in many of our lives, but worry has surpassed Jesus and has become the ultimate God of our lives. And what I mean by that is that for many of us, if we take an honest examination of our life, worry is the foundation from which every aspect of our lives flows. Worry is why we make the decisions we do. Worry is what dominates my thoughts. Worry is what sets my goals. Worry is how I lead my relationships. Worry is how I go about the day-to-day. Worry about the small, worry about the big. So now we see why Jesus is addressing this because worry is a very real false God in many of our lives. It dominates how we view this. We have this relationship with our lives that all we know how to do is to worry about tomorrow, to worry about the next hour, to worry about the provision, and so on, and so on. And so let me illustrate, excuse me, let me illustrate how many of us see this struggle. And to do that, I need a bit of a prop. Ron, can you bring my game out, please? Have you ever played the game Jenga? Thanks, Ron. Give it up for Ron here, everybody. So you remember the rules of Jenga? The idea is you play with other people, and you take a block at a time, somewhere from the bottom, you put it on top, you keep building the structure, and the hope is that you don't knock everything down. 
That's how Jenga works. And so if you're like me, a game of Jenga is nothing but constant anxiety. Because the whole thing you're focused on is the wobbles. In fact, this is a new version of Jenga. They made it even harder. You take a block, you put it on the top, and then you pick up the structure, and you pass it to someone else. So some genius made this even harder. <laughs> and the reason why I'm using this as an illustration is because for many of us, this is our lives. We are stuck in a never-ending cycle in which we are playing a solo game of Jenga. And what I mean is, each one of these blocks will represent our worries. This is our finances. This is our kids. This is the future. This is what I don't have. This is my job. This is my education. This is my career. And so what we end up doing is we have our eyes locked on our worries, and we see this as being our game. And so we feel that the responsibility is on us and on us alone to try to put the pieces in place, to try to move them, to try to position them without toppling everything over. And we're so locked on this that we don't see God moving in our lives. We don't see God moving in our worry, that God maybe can assist us, but again, the misplacement of worry is this is my game, this is my responsibility, and it's hard to take our eyes off it because we see the wobbles, don't we? We see it shaking, and many of us have experienced it numerous times. This is a game we can't win because no matter how we place, no matter how we position it, eventually life topples over. In fact, sometimes life doesn't wait for the game to end. Sometimes circumstances come and just knock everything down. Sometimes life is unfair and destroy the game before we can get in there. And so again, what happens? Well, we think this is a solo game. We think this is our responsibility to now pick up the pieces, to try to rebuild, to try to have some semblance of normal. We try to do it all again, but yet the pieces keep falling. Can you relate to that? Because I know I definitely can. And so we need to understand something that for us, if that's our viewpoint, this command that Jesus gives is almost terrifying because we sit there and go, well, I can't do this. Is God gonna be upset with me? Am I gonna live outside his will? And so this is where we need a paradigm shift that when Jesus commands this, this is not a command based on guilt. This is a command that's built on joy and beauty. What he's saying is, my children, this is what you have known life to be. I am calling you to live in a new reality. See, for many of us right now, our reality is rooted in worry. By issuing this command, what Jesus is saying, by listening and following to me, I am giving you a brand new reality that is rooted in the identity of who God is. This is not self-help. This is not something that we can do on our own, but Jesus commands us to live free from worry based on who he is, based on his power, on his identity, and the fact that he lives with us and goes with us everywhere we go. It is a command of beauty and a command built on the power of God. And he continues to paint this picture as we continue to read. Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is life not more than food? Would you underline or highlight the word more? Is life not more than food and the body more? Again, would you underline that word more? And the body more than clothes? And so as we look at this analogy, Food, clothes, we would all say these are the basic necessities, but these also, these also are a metaphor for what we worry for. And so Jesus, again, is not dismissing healthy concern, but what he's saying is, yes, these are good things. Yes, these are things we would say we need, but there is something bigger. There is a bigger picture that we need. And understand the audience Jesus is talking to, the majority of the people that are listening to him teach range from poor to very poor, a type of poor that very few of us have ever experienced living out here in the West. And so the idea of food and clothes was a constant worry, a constant thing that they went without. And Jesus is saying to people who have very little, I am not dismissing your concerns, but there is a bigger picture. There is a bigger provision. There is still more for you. You know what's beautiful about this is over the years, I, like many of you, have had uh, many opportunities to serve the homeless and the needy in our communities. And what's amazing when you get to do that is you see stories of tragedy, you see stories of loss, but without fail, you always find people in the homeless community who are filled with genuine joy by Jesus that'll tell you, I may not have much by the world standards, but I am rich because of the presence of God in my life. See, that is a picture of what Jesus is saying here. As we continue, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Would you underline that? Would you highlight that? Are you much, not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And so as Jesus paints this picture, he's gonna use multiple pictures of nature and multiple pictures of how, look at how God provides for nature itself. And this first one of birds, and if you think about it, he's using this idea that birds don't stress about their provisions, they trust on a provider. They trust that there is a bigger picture. And I love what he emphasizes, are you not more valuable than birds? See, one of the greatest steps we can take to beginning to experience a life that is free from worry is by embracing the high value God places on each and every one of us. See, in a humorous way, we can think about it, Jesus did not come and die and rise again to create a way for birds to spend eternity with him. Jesus came, died, and rose again so that we could spend eternity with him. See, Jesus cares about all of creation, but going back to Genesis, when we read the creation account, men and women, people are the crescendo. We are the crown jewel of creation. And so he is reminding us, as our father, you are my prized possession and I will care for you. And then he continues to go, what good will worrying do to us? And he asks that question, can you add another hour to your life by worrying? How many of us have wished we could do that at some point or another? How many of us have wished we could add at least five more minutes? And has it worked? 
What's really interesting is in the Greek, the word we've translated to hour isn't actually a, a measure of time, but it's a measure of length. It means about the length of a forearm or a cubit. And so as he's talking about it, he's using one of the smallest measurements and going, how's worry working out for you? Have you added an inch to the length of your day? Have you added just 30 seconds to your day? But he makes a true statement that we think through worrying, we're going to prolong our life. The reality is that worry steals our life. Worry steals our time. That is what false gods do. And then he continues, verse 28, and why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, this is King Solomon from the Old Testament, David's son, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, often grass was cut, dried, and used to power ovens. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so once again, to show that God is our provider, that God is care, that God does care for each and every one of our lives, what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of truth in how we see God caring for nature, in how we see God caring for creation. And so we look at this example of flowers and grass, that even the smallest aspects of nature have been intricately designed. But the point that he's making here is that God cares so much about nature which is temporary, that flowers come and go, that the grass grows and then it's destroyed. And the big point that he's making is if God cares so much about what is temporary, how much more does he care about you who has been designed to be eternal? See, what a beautiful truth that one of the things that worry does to us is worry lies to us. Worry lies to us and said, God does not care about you. God has forgotten you. God will not provide for you. God can't provide for you. And Jesus is refocusing us going, look at how God cares for nature. How much more will he care for you? One of the beautiful truths when we look at creation is we see that as God provides for nature, we also see the fact that God has not now, nor will he ever forget us. God has not now, nor will he ever abandon us. We are his crown jewel, his beloved. And the way that he provides for nature, it is a living guarantee that he will provide for us. And what's amazing about this teaching as Jesus talks to a primarily Jewish audience is this is a beautifully Jewish teaching that we look at nature and see how God provides. We see this often in the Old Testament. There in your note sheet, I have a couple examples from the Psalms. First from Psalm 104. He, God, makes springs that pour water into the ravines. 
It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. God waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth from the earth wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread to sustain their hearts. So again, another example of how God cares intricately for the temporary. And then we move on to how he cares for us. Psalm 8, what I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind? This is us. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them, yet you made them a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. What a beautiful reminder of how God sees you. That as much as he cares for the temporary, he cares much, much more for you who has been designed, who, who has been designed to be eternal. And then he continues. Verse 31, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 32, for the pagans, would you underline that word? For the pagans run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. And so in this context, he's using the word pagan to describe those that aren't walking with God, those that aren't walking with Jesus. I often like to characterize it as those that have yet to put their faith in Jesus as Lord, those that have yet to experience his transformation. And he's asking and he's reminding us that he did not save us to make us slightly better, but he saved us to make us radically different. And so what he's saying is worry being the God of someone's life, worry being the primary focus. That is what people did before Jesus. That is their paradigm. They have no reason to believe or expect that a God will provide for them. But for the people of Jesus, we must not think that way any longer. He's asking us to examine our hearts because we need to settle the question of priority. In fact, this question is the underlying theme in so much of the Sermon on the Mount. What is the true priority of your life? I thought Michael put it so beautifully last week that are we simply fans of Jesus or are we committed to truly being followers of Jesus? What we, that means is do we simply like Jesus at times or are we willing to trust, listen, and obey to what he says? Because again, worry deceives, but for the people of God, we live in a new truth, in a new reality, in a new paradigm, and that new paradigm is the kingdom of God. God. And he goes on to talk about that in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Would you underline that? But seek first. That is a key word. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Isn't that the truth? Each day has its own enough trouble, but seek 
first the kingdom. And again, this is asking the question of priority. The kingdom of God, which is the priority in the mission and teaching of Jesus, that the kingdom of God is here to introduce us, to take us into a new reality. The kingdom of God cannot simply be one of competing realities in our lives. That is the question Michael asks. Is it Jesus and, or is it only Jesus? Another way of looking about that, is it the kingdom or is it the kingdom and? Because when the kingdom of God is anything but ultimate, that's when we filter it. That's when we distort it. That's when we shrink it. And when the kingdom of God is shrunk in our life, when the kingdom of God is not our ultimate priority, that's when worry takes over. That's when anxiety creeps in. That's when it begins to take the place of the kingdom in our lives because the kingdom came to lead us to a new reality, one that is free from worry. And again, he talks about that when we seek the kingdom, we will experience righteousness. We see this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. This is again God's view of you, that if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity is one of righteousness. We are not perfect. We don't know all things. We still get confused. We still stumble and we fall. But when you've given your life to Jesus in a beautiful act of repentance in his eyes, your identity is righteous. That is what it means to live in the kingdom. And righteousness implies freedom that we no longer live in bondage, particularly in this passage, the bondage of worry and anxiety, but we live in a new freedom brought about by the kingdom of Jesus. And then as he talks about tomorrow, isn't often our worry about tomorrow? Isn't often our worry about the next day and the next? And this beautifully ties into the model of prayer that he gave us when we are taught to ask, give us today our daily bread. Because the truth is, good, bad, everything in between, tomorrow is not guaranteed. But today is. And one thing that affects our tomorrow is how we trust and depend God for the today. If we learn to trust God to provide for us, to see him as provider for this moment, then that will completely transform how we view and trust God to provide for our tomorrow. And then to sum up this passage, I like how it's there on your note sheet. The command, do not worry, does not imply a complete lack of concern, nor does it call on people to be unwilling to work and supply their own needs. Instead, Jesus was continuing to highlight kingdom priorities. Would you underline that? Kingdom priorities, the attitude towards life that his disciples should exemplify. And so that's our passage today. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack this further. Specifically, I want to spend some time addressing the question, how do we begin to experience this? If this is the life that Jesus calls us into, that he provides, what's our responsibility? What step do we need to take to experience this? So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Freedom from Worry, the Key Step. And your fill-in is a long sentence because I'm cramming a bunch of stuff in there. But it's this developing and deepening an unhurried relationship with Jesus. How 
how do we experience this life that is free from this all-consuming worry? By developing and deepening an unhurried relationship with Jesus. What it means to not be a fan, but to be a follower of Jesus means that we engage in genuine one-on-one relationship with him. And engaging in genuine one-on-one relationship with Jesus will always lead to transformation. That's what Jesus does, is he transforms us whenever we're in his presence, in small ways, in big ways, in ways in between. And one of the key ways in which Jesus regularly transforms us is in how we see identity, in how we see him, who he is, what his true character is, what he's capable of, his role in our lives, and because of that, in how we see ourselves, in who we now are, in who he empowers us to be, and how we are to now listen and follow. And so by engaging in a regular rhythm, by engaging regularly in genuine relationship, what Jesus is doing is he is constantly fixing our eyes on truth. Because often what we're fixed on is lies. Often what we're fixed on, all these false gods. In this case, often what our eyes are fixed on is worry. But what Jesus does through his transformation is that he moves our gaze and he fixes it on him. And by expanding our view of identity, he keeps growing bigger and bigger in our sight. He keeps becoming much, much more powerful. And that is how we experience a life that is free from worry. Because the reality is when we see our worries, they are giants in our lives, aren't they? Whatever it is we're worried about, whether it's finances, whether it's health, whether it's relationships of some kind, whether it's the future, whether it's a combination, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a need for healing, and again, we're not dismissing this, but the reality is they become giants, and when something becomes a giant in our lives, that's all we can see, isn't it? It's hard, no matter how we shift our gaze, we can't see it, we can't pass it, and so by engaging in a relationship with Jesus, by developing, meaning starting that relationship, by deepening it, meaning regularly engage in that relationship, what Jesus begins to show us is not only that he is bigger than the giants of worry in our life, but that he is the giant slayer in our lives. These giants are not going to fall by our own power, but they're going to fall through the power and authority of Jesus. And by engaging in this relationship, it directly impacts the size of Jesus in our lives because how big we see Jesus impacts how we trust him with our worries and our anxieties when we find peace. And for many of us, we need to hear this message of God because we need a bigger image of Jesus in our life. Because for many of us, we have an image of Jesus that is smaller than the giants we face. And if our image of Jesus is smaller, than the giants, then the giants are going to win. And we need to remove those filters. A small image of Jesus lessens the impact of his power in our lives. Let me illustrate it this way. I've talked about it before. Many of you know that I've been a voracious reader my whole life. 
And something I've mentioned many times on the stage, one of my favorite series of books is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Particularly, my favorite in the series has always been The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And if you've ever been familiar with the Narnia books or the Narnia movies themselves, C.S. Lewis as a Christ follower often used him as an allegory to teach truths about Jesus and who he is. And one of the most blatant ways, and a beautiful way of saying that, that he does that is through the character of Aslan, the lion and the ruler of Narnia. Yeah. Andre, if you would throw that image up there. And so how we're meant to picture Aslan is this massive, powerful lion. See, we're introduced to Aslan and we see that he is creator, much like God, that out of his voice, Narnia is created, Narnia is sustained, that through this image of Aslan, he will take the battlefield with us, he will win the wars, he will carry our burdens, he will end our suffering. In fact, my favorite line is from the line, The Witch and the Wardrobe, when the kids are about to meet Aslan and Mr. Beaver is describing who he is and he says, Aslan is a lion, he is the lion. He is the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And again, it's meant for us to picture this giant, unstoppable force. And so as we read through this series of books, having a big image of Aslan is essential for us to understand the impact of his role and the character in these books. Now, if we didn't have a big image of Aslan, that would lessen or ruin the impact. In fact, if we had a different view of Aslan, let's say a picture like this. Andre, could you throw the next one up? If that's... <laughs> how we viewed Aslan, it completely changes the nature of the books, doesn't it? If that's how we pictured Aslan, and in one of the books, like in Prince Chaosomy, when it says that Aslan will take the battlefield, we would go, really? That guy? What can he possibly do? Andre, you can pull those down, thank you. And that's used to illustrate for us that if we have a small view of God, then we will see ourselves as bigger. And again, going back to the Jenga analogy, it is now our responsibility to fight the giants on our own. But if by developing and deepening a genuine relationship for Jesus, we allow him to transform how we see him, then again, he will not only become bigger than our giants, but we will see him as the one that slays our giants. And so when we see Jesus as anything less than big, then what happens is we filter him. Worry is a key filter we place on Jesus. And so it's through relationship that that filter is removed. But it's not only a one-time thing. This is where that word unhurried comes in. You know, one of the most beautiful things about God, and to be honest, as a sinful human being, one of the most infuriating things about Jesus is that a key characteristic of him is that he is unhurried. He is not rushed. And when it comes to our worry, when it comes to our anxiety, we are in a hurry, aren't we? We want this done now. 
And again, this is the opportunity for sin to take a hold that if it's not done now in the specific way that I request or that I want, then we start thinking lies about Jesus, that maybe you can't, maybe you won't, maybe you don't care. But here's what's genius. We are better off for him being unhurried because as we learn his character, that he is big, that he is giant slayer, that he is provider, that he is with us, sometimes the best education we can get on that is by sitting with the Lord in an unhurried pace in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of our trials. Sometimes in our deepest struggles, the Lord is unhurried because it is the best way to see that he is who he says he is, that he is bigger, that he is powerful, that he is the Aslan in our lives, that he will take the battlefield, that he has not forgotten who we are, that he will lead to freedom. The Bible talks about that in that unhurried relationship is when we begin to understand that he gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding, that doesn't just come from our circumstances being changed, but that peace comes from our vision being changed as to seeing who Jesus is. And I pray, and we are invited to ask Jesus, change this. Jesus, provide this. And we know that prayer does. But the most important thing that Jesus provides for us is his presence. And it is in that unhurried relationship that we grow exponentially. And we need to be willing to sit in that. I like how it's put there in your note sheet. We can advance along the road to perfection only by walking closely with Jesus. As we watch his way of dealing with the countless problems and troubles that beset his life, we achieve wisdom as to how to meet our own. But to walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Would you underline that? But to walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. And he says, why? Hurry is the death of prayer. In other words, hurry is the death of relationship. Hurry is the death of trust. Hurry is the death of prayer and only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances it. That's wonderful, isn't it? And so as we ask the question practically, well, what does this look like in our lives to not only develop, to not only deepen, but to learn to walk with Jesus in an unhurried pace? There are many wonderful ways in which we can engage in this, but the one I want to give you practically is by engaging one-on-one with his holy word, his scripture. And we've talked much about scripture in the past several weeks, especially as we did Rooted and Pursuing God. But the reality of scripture is that it's not simply a mere book. Scripture is God-breathed. The breath of God is contained in the pages of scripture. And the breath of God brings it the authority and power of God. And, only the, and it's the authority that only God has, which is to give life, which is to grow us and transform us, which is to bring us into the kingdom. And the beauty of scripture is that scripture is constantly screaming who God is, how much bigger he is than the worries and the giants in our lives. Scripture is constantly removing filters. If you are looking to see an unfiltered image of Jesus, there is probably no better method than learning how to engage one-on-one with him in scripture. It's why as a church, we devote everything we do to scripture 
scripture, from our time of worship to our time of teaching, to our life groups, to our times of service, to our kids and our students. Everything we do is built on the foundation of learning to develop and deepen and walk in an unhurried pace with Jesus through his beautiful word. Now, in terms of how to get into it, some of you are here and you're new to this idea of Scripture, and you just need some more insight into what exactly is the Bible. Some of you are here and you're looking for how do I practically get started. If you hop on our YouTube page, I wish I had the time today, but if you hop on our YouTube page or if you download our free Rocky Peak app, there are our videos. And so specifically, if you go back to the Pursuing God series, you're going to see it right there on one of the early YouTube channels, excuse me, one of the subdivisions on our YouTube channels. There are some wonderful message on both what is the Bible and secondly, how to engage and read in the Bible one-on-one. And so talking about how the Bible removes filters, I like how Louis Giglio puts it in your note sheet. The whole of scripture points not to our abilities, but to Jesus as the savior of the world. On every page, in every story, Jesus can be seen. Victorious, steadfast, able, trustworthy, mighty, loving, worthy. As long as our eyes are on the problem and the solution lies within ourselves, the X's are going to pile up on the calendar of our fight, marking the days little to nothing has changed. But all that changes the day Jesus enters the valley of, our valley of Elah. The valley of Elah is where David faced the monster Goliath. The moment we stop staring at our giant and lock eyes with Jesus, that's the moment our hope shifts from us to him. And so as we engage in this one-on-one relationship with Jesus, as we do all three of those things, as we develop, as we deepen, as we learn to walk in hurry, what we're gonna see is that Jesus is often gonna take our focus, gonna take our sight, and he's gonna shift it off these giants onto him. And specifically, he often shifts it into two key areas. And so you have a section titled Focusing on What We Can Know. And again, I I titled it this way because when we worry, it's because we worry about the mystery. We worry about what we don't know. And it's in those times that we need to be refocused by Jesus on what we do know, on what will never change. And so the first area in which Jesus often fixes our eyes on is this, his character, Jesus's character. And this is the foundation of this entire journey, this entire series through Unfiltered, is for us to learn from the Holy Scriptures and then to be able to confidently declare, this is who Jesus really is. And throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings, the commands, the charges Jesus has been given us, they have been reflecting his character. We've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount with just a few examples that Jesus is compassion in how he cares for the needy and asks us to, and how he cares for this, for those who have yet to put their lives in him when he calls us to be salt in life, and how he cares even for his enemies, this radical compassion. We have seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus' character is one of devotion, is one of commitment, that he is devoted to each and every one of us, that he taught us to pray that our Father will provide. We have seen this devotion in one another, that he has taught us to be devoted in our relationships, that he has taught us to be devoted in our honesty and authenticity so that we don't uh, put any roadblocks or divide our relationships. And through this passage, we see again a core characteristic that Jesus is provider, that he provides for his creation and he provides 
provides for his children. And so often what Jesus will do is he will focus us on that truth because in our lives we need to be reminded of this. And so let me ask you to just reflect in the honesty of your own minds. Do you see Jesus as provider in your life? Do you see him as provider in some areas, but maybe not in others? Do you lose faith in Jesus being a provider when he calls you to be unhurried in the times of anxiety and worry and stress? Does the waiting make it hard to see this? Is this a focus in your life? Because through the scripture, he's trying to refocus us. Now hear me very clearly. The methodology of Jesus is never to guilt and shame us. Some of us might be answering those questions and going no, or it's hard to trust. We might be feeling a holy conviction, but the reason why the Lord is speaking to us is not for us to hang our heads in shame, but this is an opportunity to see Jesus in a fuller picture, to see him more as providers in the midst of our worry. This is an opportunity to be transformed. And so one of the ways he transforms us is through prayer, by specifically coming to him and asking for him to provide for us. He welcomes it. When it comes to that, what you're worried about, what you're fearful about, go before your provider and ask. Go before your provider and plead. Go before your provider and yell. Go before your provider and sob. Go before your provider and yell at him. Have a holy psalm moment. And what you will see that he provides for us is his love and grace through all of it. What he will also provide for us is his peace. Our circumstances may not necessarily change, but he will provide our greatest need, which is him, which is his presence, which is his peace, and he will remind us that I am with you always. So the first focus is on the character of Jesus. The second focus is on Jesus's kingdom. That is the second thing he will often focus us onto in through relationship. And if you think about it, throughout the entire ministry of Jesus, throughout the four gospel accounts that we have, the primary focus of his ministry was to declare that the kingdom of God was now here. The kingdom of God was Jesus' focus. In fact, in earlier in Matthew chapter 4, this isn't in your note sheet, but when he started his teaching ministry, the first thing he taught was repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the reason why this is such a focus for him when he's talking to us, his disciples, his children, is he wants to constantly remind us that the kingdom of God is not this abstract, unreachable place. The kingdom of God is not a fantasy. It is not Narnia, how we talked about. It is not Middle Earth. It is not Never Never Land. But the kingdom of God is here and now. And for the followers of Jesus, the kingdom of God is our ever-present reality. This is the reality we live in now, and this is the reality we will live in for all of eternity. And by embracing that that is our focus and that is our reality, we are embracing the fact that the kingdom of God radically changes everything. It changes a person, it changes a group of people, it changes the world through it. That is what the kingdom does. And so when he says to seek first the kingdom, he's saying make the kingdom your ultimate priority, because again, whatever 
whatever your ultimate priority is, then every other decision you make, every other thought you have, every other aspect of your life will flow out of your ultimate priority. And when we choose to seek the kingdom first, then that becomes our new priority and every other aspect of our lives will now flow out of the kingdom and it will transform everything. And so as Jesus focuses on the kingdom, again, let's reflect and ask some honest questions in the honesty of your mind. Is the kingdom your priority? Is seeking the kingdom one of your priorities? Is seeking the kingdom not even on your radar? When you wake up each and every morning, what gets you out of bed? What motivates you to keep moving forward? What motivates you to how to handle your relationships? What motivates you in how you deal with your hardships, your worrying, your trial? And is the kingdom even a candidate? Now again, there might be some holy conviction there, but know that Jesus is here to remove shame from our lives, that this is an opportunity to be transformed that if you're sitting there going, the kingdom is not what I seek above all else, well, the Lord is here to transform you, to move your sight onto his kingdom so that that becomes an ever-present reality so that you live in freedom. Because that is his desire and his will. That is who we have called to be, a people that live in freedom. Amen? You know, as we close out our service, I'm going to invite our worship team to come on out. And as they do that, I want to share one last quote with you. This isn't in your note sheet, but I came across this yesterday as I was doing my final preparation, and it says this, when we seek first to honor God as king and conform our lives to his righteousness, worry will always find us otherwise occupied. Isn't that wonderful? When we seek first to honor God as king and conform our lives to his righteousness, worry will always find us otherwise occupied. And so again, Rocky Peak, this is an opportunity for the Lord to expand our sight, to fix it on his identity and his kingdom. And so as we go into this time of worship, we're gonna sing a beautiful song that declares who we are because of who God is. And think about that. You are declaring, I am who you say I am. And as we make that declaration, who God says we are, are a people that is free, are a people that is no longer living in bondage, are a people that live in the kingdom and this new reality. And so declare it loudly. Declare it from the depths of your soul. This is who we are. And for many of us today, through his scripture, is a turning point in that. This is a new beginning as you embrace the reality. So let's declare that together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for your reality. Thank you that we no longer need to live in bondage of fear, anxiety, and worry. Thank you that there are so many of us that we don't even know what a life like that is like, but that is what you lead us to. That is what your kingdom is all about. Transformation and freedom from worry, freedom from bondage. And so Jesus, this morning as a church, we declare that what you say is true. We declare that what you say about who you are is true. We declare that 
what you say about who we are is true. We declare that the life you provide is true and we want to embrace it. We want to live in your freedom. And so as we declare this through this final song, these aren't mere words we're saying, but these are heartfelt, holy declarations of who you are, of who we are, and the freedom we now have in the life of Jesus. And so we thank you for this time. We thank you for the gifts and offerings we're going to receive for the saints that are funding the movement here at Rocky Peak. And more importantly, we thank you for your presence in the good, in the bad, in the worry, in the calm that goes with us always. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Let's stand together.